Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So, Guy, Nick Mason's source full of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And the fact that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never yeah. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you and, know, uh, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. Was he, was he, um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, I'm Guy Pratt. And I'm Gary Kemp. And we're getting ready for the next Rock on Tours Live. Join us at the iconic Battersea Power Station in London for a special screening of Quadrophenia, greatest youth cult movie ever made, followed by a recording of the podcast where our guests will be director Frank Rodham and the star. Phil Daniels. Yep. It's happening on February the 22nd. Tickets are now on sale. Go to thecinemainthepowerstation.com. Celebration of British classic Quadrophenia. See you then. Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you and Merry Christmas to all of our listeners. Yes, all of you. What are you up to tomorrow? Nothing. (laughs) I haven't bought you a present. You know that. But nothing. You never do. You never do, Gal. You never get me present. No, um, I, I'll be doing. I don't know something vaguely Christmassy. I like doing things on other days around. Do you know what I mean? I mean it's different for you, well, Gal. You still got children we, at home. We folk. I love the build-up to Christmas. I really do. I love that. That sort of you know, the, the vibe. And I have felt Christmassy. I think you know. I had a little party at my house, and that got me in a Christmassy mood. That was the gateway, really, for me. It's like a gate. Yeah, it's very much your your Christmas party is very much a gateway, Joe. And I must say, it wasn't what an amazing party it was. We now realise that the real reason that uh, we've been doing rock on tours for the last few years is so that Gary can <laughs> harvest celebrities for his Christmas party. But we had a few celebrities that we would love to have on. They were there, and they and we yeah. still can't twist their arm, can we? we That's right. Yeah, we tried that. But, yeah. Again, this is the other reason for you throwing your party is in the hope of luring people onto rock on tours. Of course, rock on tours is the centre of my existence, as it, it should, should be. be. It should be. Um, and who, who, our guest today. I mean, there's none more Christmas, really, is there? None more Christmassy. Well, there's there's only one or two who would be equally Christmassy, one of whom we've had, yeah, which, of course, yeah, Noddy. is Noddy Holder. But uh, th- this is, if yeah. nothing says Christmas special more than our guest. Yeah, more than our guest. I mean, what a fantastic history. I mean, three legendary bands, all yeah. sorts of stuff. Yeah, and um, 20 singles in the UK charts. Come on, Bill, come on. Three, come on. three UK number ones. 
But, you know, when you... Oh, and of course, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with ELO in 2017. That was nice, by the way. Don't you think that was nice, considering... I mean, because that's not... You know, that one album, which is brilliant, by the way, and yeah. I would recommend yeah. anyone go and listen to the first album, which is the Electric yeah. Light Orchestra. Yeah. Um, and But that's not what hit, you know. that That's kind of not what got in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, is it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, so it's really, it's great that he got in he, on that. He got embraced in that with, by Jeff Lynne. Yes. Well, they, yes. Were, they, were, they were so important together. But of course, obviously, Jeff wasn't there when, when Roy started in The Move. And there's tons of such good music from The Move. I mean, such good music. That's been, it's been a great rabbit hole. And really, and really well produced. And well, it was that legendary duo of... Um, uh, you know, it was Danny Cordell, wasn't it? That's right. And Tony Secunda. Um, Tony Secunda. But anyway. It's easy for you Tony to Secunda. say, isn't it? And to stay safe. I used to know his brother, actually, Danny Secunda. He used to run track records. Do you know his his wife, Chiquita, was the one who first put the glitter on Mark and David's face? Do you know that story? So Chiquita Secunda. Chiquita Secunda. How dare you? <laughs> so they were at a party, and I think it was the night before that Mark was going to go on Top of the Pops for the first time. And she got some glitter from her makeup. She put it under his cheek and said, why don't you go on like this? And of course, David saw that happening. He was at the party. He was at the other side of the room. And he came running over and he said, glitter me too. You know, sort of thing. And Glitter uh, me too. That's brilliant. That's our new battle cry. <laughs> yeah. They'll, I tell you, they'll shoot me first with my pantaloons. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so yes. so so yes, there's lots to talk about. There's the move, there's electric light orchestra. Oh, and he had a band called Wizard, right? Who went on to do all sorts of other stuff as well. He did, he produced lots of other people, did all sorts of other things. He's yeah. got yeah. he's brilliant. Yeah, big story. Let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. That caused a big problem in the band, actually. I was having too much fun. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a bite. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. That's it. Get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! <laughs> Greetings. Yes, you're on, you, you're on the phone. Haven't got you at a bad time, have we? Let's talk it to you lot. Hello, mate. <laughs> Greetings. Greetings. Look at that. Hi, Roy. I'm Guy. Delighted to meet you. Hello, Guy. Hi, Gary. Hello, mate. Nice to have you on. Thanks for doing this. We bumped into each other, didn't we, in, in, in the Peak District. And yeah, I... Derbyshire, yeah. What a shock. It's one of those, because I'd, I'd never met you before. And uh, I looked across, and I thought, I just said hello, and I thought... I know that I know him, and and then you came over and introduced yourself, and it, that was it. Yeah, yeah. If it was in London, I'd have known you straight away, but being up there, I didn't. You know, <laughs> exactly. It's like somebody not wearing the uniform. You know what I mean? So what were you? Were you both out walking or something? No, we were in a hotel in the Peak well, District. Yeah, Gary was... might have been. I, I wasn't definitely. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think I think you were getting dropped off by a car, and I saw you, and then uh, and then I went over and I had a, a chat with you at your table, and um, yeah, it was great. And uh, and I thought, you know what, we've got to get you on Rock on Tours. So here we great, are. Great, great, great. Yeah, I love your medieval Crusader stained glass windows. Did you put those? Oh, in? Thanks. Yeah, 
I thought I'd, I'd turn the desk around a bit to make it a bit more interesting. Or well, the, the bookshelves are at the other end of the room. They're usually at the back of you. And is that the shovel guitar, the spade guitar? Oh, yeah. 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 Ah, you, see? Eagle that, eye, eagle eye. For those of you uh, listening on, on radio, I'm just showing them the spade guitar. Look. Oh, look at that. Fantastic. So it's, it's a guitar that looks like a spade. What made you think yeah. of that? Well, I, I did a I did a drawing of a, a Spear and Jackson shovel and uh, and put some. <laughs> Sorry, put, say put that again. Tuning, <laughs> put some tuning pegs and and pickups on it. And I thought well, that that looks great. So I I, uh, I gave it to John Birch and he made it. Here's, here's another one, Wally. There, I'm just changing the strings on it. It's a double neck. Uh, hang on, it's a double neck. Fender Strat. Yeah, I've never oh, seen wow, one of those. That. Wow. And uh, it's a guitar at the top and a six-string bass at the bottom. Wow. Fantastic. So, and it's got, has it got an ice maker in the back? David Gilmore's oh. got a double neck strap, or he had it, because he yeah. basically he had this piece. He said, somehow he ended up with this piece of mahogany, and he just had it hanging around and not what to do with it. So he thought, actually, that, why don't I get a double neck strap? So he had a double yeah. neck strap made and he put it on. So it was so heavy. <laughs> oh yeah, that, that is yeah. 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 It, it looks like it looks it when I look at it though, I get it makes me feel like it needs to go in for a sixteen hour operation in a German hospital or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, He's separated. Be like, like myself. Um, <laughs> but with the, the, the was the spade guitar at the same time as the Yob guitar? Was that a seventies thing? Yeah, it was, yeah. John Birch used to make a lot of guitars. John, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great, great. He was, <laughs> he was a bit of a lad, though, John Birch, because uh, I only found out later. Because, like, in those days, it didn't take much notice of your guitars and that. I mean, I, I, the one that I had uh, that my parents bought me, which was originally Flamingo Pink, I think it was called, and it sprayed all sorts of colours because it was a thing to do in those days. Yeah. And I really wish I hadn't. And... Uh, what Bertie used, he used to do is, um, I, I, I didn't realise till later that he, he used to, uh, you know, there's a, there's a for, for your listeners, there's a, a there's a place on the back of a, a, a Fender guitar with a with a serial number on it, which denotes where, what year it was made oh, the, and all the this neck plate, stuff. yeah, the neck plate, yeah. So uh, what he used to do is he used to nick the neck neck plates and put them on his own guitars and flog them for loads of money. Oh, God. And, uh, and yet I ended up with a neck plate on the back of mine that was no number at all. Wow. And I didn't even realise. So there are guitars out there that for the proper dealers are probably selling for the yeah. wrong price. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's with guitar because with basses, if it's got an L in front of it, that's when it gets really valuable because that's pre-CBS. Yeah. Sorry, you started talking about bases. I, I will now. <laughs> so there's so much You're to gonna talk go to just, you about. You're going to chisel L's into all the back numbers. Right. Yeah. There's so yeah. much to talk to you about, Roy. I mean, listening back to... I mean, my God, man, look at you. I'm looking at you here now, and you look fantastic. Yeah. And, and and I can't believe you go back you, to the 60s. You don't look so bad yourself. You go back to the 60s, to psychedelia and i mean listening to those early move songs in oh, the last couple of days it's, it's such a great rabbit hole genius and for anyone to come up with the title i can hear the grass grow i mean <laughs> what a great title that was <laughs> but, but all of it going back to night of fear your first one which i noticed has a bit of tchaikovsky in there so you were yeah. really ahead of that game that we all thought was the was invented with elo 
uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I always wanted to do that. Uh, and it was only later that I, that I was in a position to do the ALO thing. But I, I'd always been influenced by orchestral stuff because my parents always played it at home, you know. Because you're self-taught, right? Yeah. But, you, but you're self-taught on everything. Like cello and stuff, yeah, right? I mean, yeah. that's saxophone. I've never never had any music lessons. Amazing. So what was the house like you grew up in? Was it with your parents' musical? Uh, well, my mum played the piano and my sister did. There was a piano in the house. But uh, in fact, I played quite a lot, of, a lot of instruments, but I never had the, unlike you lot, I didn't have the patience for piano. And I'm, I'm not very good on it. I mean, I, I'm all right, I play a few chords if I want to write something. But if somebody said, can you can you play a tune, give us a tune, and I couldn't do it, you know. Yeah. So yeah, you haven't yeah. got the but patience got. for the piano, but you got the patience for the cello. Okay. Yeah, cello and the bagpipes, yeah. <laughs> that, well, that's a challenge. So how did they come in? How did those instruments come into your life? What was the first instrument you owned? We never had, really had any money, you know, the same, same as all of us when we first started and that. But when in the move, when, when we started to earn a little bit, uh, I, I started to collect instruments. And there were a couple of shops down the Stratford Road in Birmingham that sold second-hand ones. And uh, I bought a I bought a string bass which I loved, called it the Killer, and that, it was that was that was marvelous. And that, after Jerry uh, Lee, <laughs> yeah. So what what else did I buy? I bought an oboe, uh, a tenor horn, a few things, and then I thought, oh, and it, it was became a bit of a hobby, you know. I just started collecting them, yeah. and you can't collect them without having a go on them. You know what I mean? And it, it came in useful later when I, I did my solo albums and I played all the instruments on, on the album because I, I'm not really very good at any of them, to be fair, but I'm good enough to play my own songs, if you know what I mean. To yeah. blow your own I, trumpet. I can, yeah. I can choose and write some easy parts. <laughs> but did, but was it rock and You're saying there was classical music in the house, but was it rock and roll that made you pick up an instrument? What what was it? Did you have that defi- defining moment, that kind of... Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean... Beatles on the, the radio the or thing, Elvis or whatever. First thing I ever played was drums at my, my sister's wedding when I was uh, six. Uh, I bet they loved that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, my... Had you been asked? <laughs> Yeah, well, my dad knew there's a bloke called uh, Sam Harris who had a had a little uh, little band which actually played at the wedding. He used to play Tim Tim Party in the Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, and he was a nice guy, you know. And he taught me a little bit on the on the drums and that for my sister's wedding. And I got up and did that. I did a little swing thing with a quartet or something. So that's the first time I ever played, and. Uh, the next thing I think was uh, my dad bought me a, a chromatic uh, harmonica when I was 10 and uh, I had a go at that. Guitar, yeah, when I was around about 12 or 13, I got on the bus, number 14 bus, into Birmingham uh, to Birmingham Town Hall to see the shadows. Oh, uh, there it, it is. It was just, ah, oh, because I've been a fan anyway, like buying a Cliff and the Shadows uh, singles and all that. And uh, I just love the sound of the guitar and that. And it, it, to listen to it live, it sounded like Hank's guitar had been dipped in Dettol, you know. It was so clean and lovely yeah. and dying and fabulous. And it, even Bruce Welsh was playing a Fender Jazz Master, which I'd never seen before. And uh, you could hear all the strings going, swing, you know, when he when played across it. It's fabulous. Those of us who know, we've probably played Birmingham Town Hall since. 
Uh, it's terrible. The sand is rotten. And uh, the secret was that the only way to get a good sound there was to play quiet, which the shadows did. They played quietly just through Vox ah. AC30s. And it sounded fantastic. So I nagged my mum and dad forever after that to buy me a guitar, which was like the first guitar I had was a Hofner Coloran. Um, yeah, because it had a Chevrolet arm, and I wanted to do all those things. Because also, everyone had Hofners, didn't they? Because you couldn't buy American guitars in well, those days. Everyone, well, professionals did, yeah, but that's that's a that's a designer guitar to have. Yeah, yeah, but first. you know, it was still it a was, it, because yeah, yeah, it was the German yeah. makes were yeah. popular. Weren't yeah, they? it was the closest you could get, wasn't it, to a Stratman? In those that's what that's what George had, wasn't it? George had a. a I did it. Uh-huh. His first uh-huh. guitar, his parents bought him was a was a, a Hofner President. Yeah. Is it true, though, that talking about the shadows and Hank, because I, I did read somewhere that after Carl left um, the move, Carl Wayne, that you asked Hank to play guitar yeah. for the move. Is that yeah. true? Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> what did he say? He politely said, well, I'm doing all right, thanks, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know I'd always been a big, a big fan. I didn't ask him, but I suggested it, you know, and... Uh, but he actually invited us round to the I think we went into his manager's office or something and he came in and he was really nice and everything and uh, you know he said I think uh, I think I've got it sorted I don't really want to join another band but yet. if he'd said yes you wouldn't have asked Jeff Lynn do you think Jeff wouldn't have done uh, it if Hank had said yes there's a point there's a point yeah the whole of rock and roll would have changed yeah that's true cool I've got to say looking at it Roy one thing you've got to say about Birmingham in the mid-60s is all the bands had fantastic names. Yeah, the, yeah. The yeah, Falcons, yeah. Uh, Jerry Levine and the Avengers, Mike Sheridan <laughs> and the Knight Riders, who later became yeah. the Idol Race. I mean, that really... But that, cool. but that, <laughs> that, was, that was a thing, Guy, wasn't it? In that, in that early 60s, with the, with the, with, during the Pans era, to name a band someone's name and the somethings because for a while it was John Lennon and the Silver Beatles wasn't That's it right, yeah, they yeah. Were yeah, yeah 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 when I thought of the name of the move I just called it move and I, and I did the lettering on a on some plates and saucers on a, some paper and gave it to a sign writer to do the do the logo and all that and um, it was the promoters that changed it they used to call it the move or the who or I think even uh, with your band uh Pink Floyd, they called it the Pink they, Floyd, yeah, yeah. which is ridiculous. It, it sort of stuck. It, it stuck with us after that. But then, you know, saying about the name of the bands, you know, and all that, that was probably it's probably the, the only the name that was any good. <laughs> <laughs> but also, what a scene that was with the Moody Blues up there as well. Yeah, and Spencer Davis, and yeah. there was a few. Yeah, there's some good ones. Were Band of Joy around then? No, or was that? Say again. Band of Joy were they around then, or was that a bit later? Oh, good, uh, Robbers. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but, but they sort of moved in different circles somehow. You know, he was more doing the bluesy clubs right. and that kind of thing, whereas we were doing things like the the plaza and all that. You know, just local ballroom kind of places. Did the move start as a sort of psychedelic band? Did that come out of your influence? <clears throat> come out of uh, Sergeant Pepper's, or was it to do with Moody Blues? You know that big album that they made um, uh, Days of Future Past oh, that was, was late it, no, what, what but it wasn't influenced by the Moody Blues or any any of that I mean we used to play uh, all of the movies to play in uh, separate bands uh, in, in, in Birmingham and we, and we used to congregate at a place called the Cedar Club 
because in those days, he had, the money was crap everywhere. And he, the only way you could make any money was to do what they called a double. So you'd go and play, you'd go and play first at the uh, the ice rink and then do the double at the senior club or another club. So you did two gigs in one night. And that's hauling uh, uh, your amps around and everything. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> None of us had much of a life apart apart from that. So if we had a night off, uh, we'd go down to see the club anyway, even if we weren't playing, just to take take the mick out of the bands that were on kind of thing, you know. <laughs> and we got chatting about stuff. And we, we were sort of, we were all pretty fed up with being a human jukebox and, and just doing the chart stuff and that kind of thing, which yeah. we did. We all did Beatles uh, covers and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I'd already written some songs anyway and... Uh, at the time, I, I was I was with Mike Sheridan and the Night Riders, who weren't really interested in any original songs at all at the time. And uh, I did some demos uh, on a home tape recorder and played them to a couple of people that were uh, eventually in the move. And they said, "Yeah, let's do that. You know, and let's let's be a bit more original." So that, that's how it all started. But what wow. was the influence in those songs? Do you think what was what were you trying to? Where did you pitch yourself? Ooh, now, good question. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it was just, I wish I could do that now. It was just whatever came out of my head yeah. when it went onto the paper and, and I, I sang it. But I wish I could do that now and not be influenced by a, a fashion, you know, which over the years you do, don't you? You get influenced by other people and fashion. And in those days, there wasn't so much competition. It was just like rock and roll and uh, melodies, really. I'd, I'd always been a person to like. I like good good melodies, so you can everybody can sing along, you know, and all that. But your songs have always been from the those early move ones have been like really, really well constructed and like lot quite lots of co- lots of chords and stuff. They're actually ah. technically very correct. Thank you. Well, you know, well so- I'm glad you said that. It's. Um, I wanted to, how can I explain this? I wanted to make my songs singable, but not three chord structures. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make them so that it was interesting for the musician to play, like me. I don't like playing three chord things. And so I made, if there was only three chords in it, I'd throw a load more in just to make it more interesting for myself. But, but also <laughs> lyrically, you know, there was, a, there was a sense of Britishness and sort of whimsy that's in there as well and storytelling that you were, you know, you, you weren't singing about, you know, that's the old American rock and roll, you know, falling in love uh, with my baby. Well, it, well, that, all Cars the, and girls. People, people have said before, you know, what what were your songs influenced by? And I, I mean, what did you do? That kind of thing. I've never written songs about personal strife or any, any of that, right. which is like rubbish. All my songs have just been stories that I've made up. And uh, I started doing that when I, when I, before I was like playing and that. I was, when I was at art school, I wrote some stories. So, Roy, how did the move begin then? If you, you, because you were in this other band, and then, so what was? How did it you form, and who was it? Well, we, um, like I say, we we used to meet up occasionally at the senior club and uh, have a chat about stuff, and then the chats became more intense, and we th- we thought, well, we're fed up with what we we're all fed up with what we're doing. Why don't we get a band together? So. Yeah, it was me. I was from Mike Sheridan and Night Riders, and then Carl Wayne sort of came into the picture. We weren't going to have. We wanted to be more Beatlesque and have uh, instruments and voices. Because you had four but, singers, uh, didn't you? If you can call it that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, so Cole came came in because basically Cole was very good at. I mean, he was a good singer, yeah, but he was very good at organising things, which none of the rest of us were, if you know what I mean. And uh, he got meetings together and this, that, and the other. Uh, so there's me and Carl and Ace Kefford on bass, uh, Trevor Burton uh, on guitar as well, and Bev Bevan on drums. We all just just decided to do it, and we started with the. Uh, you know, I, I had four songs uh, written on, on the, like, little tape recorder, and we started with those. And then, obviously, to get work locally, because we weren't known or any of that, we needed to do chart stuff. So we sort of zoomed in on uh, sort of motown things, you know, we were oh. playing those. We were playing, like, a, I don't know, like a rock and roll band version of Motown songs. Which is kind of where rock comes from, doesn't it? Apart from which is which, which was white guys playing playing soul music. Yeah, it was a big influence it? on the, the Beatles. Yeah, but also yeah, yeah, all yeah. of, all of yeah. Your, your Deep Purples and everyone was, you know, that's kind of yeah. Well, it was soul music and country music, yeah. wasn't it originally that it all came from? Yeah, yeah. So who was managing you then? Nobody. We just did it. There were local agents that used to book us. You know, it was one of those kind of things. In those days, uh, the Belfry which is like a golf centre. There used to be a gig there, which is a good gig, and we did the gig. And who turned up that night was uh, a guy called Tony Secunda, who managed the Moody Blues. And he came along. Someone, I didn't know about this, but someone asked him to to come along and uh, have a look at us. And and then he he thought we were really good, you know, and he wanted to take us to London and... uh, Put us on the pave, pave, pavements, uh, you know, of gold kind of thing. Because <laughs> uh, we were talking earlier, guy and I. Tony Secunda's yeah. wife was was. What did I say? Chil- Chiquita. Chiquita Secunda. Uh, and and his, brother was very, was, his brother was Danny Secunda, who ran Track Records. But go, go on, Gary, tell your story. Oh, no, just that, that she, I'd heard, was the one who put glitter <clears throat> under Mark Boland's eyes and was also the, gave, the, the night before he played Top of the Pops. And, uh, oh, really? But, but no then idea. When I started reading more about you, I actually think you're the person who, who invented glam because you were the first person to paint a star on your forehead and throw your hair yeah. out. I was the first. I think I was the first to do the uh, the, the the makeup uh, thing, uh, which was before Bowie, in fact. Yeah. Uh, and this came about when we had a we did a, a single called Brontosaurus with the move and. Carl Wayne had just left as lead singer. So everybody pointed to me to do it. And uh, someone I knew made me a, a long sort of coat with tri- triangles on, with black and white triangles, that, which was the Brontosaurus coat, which I wore on. We did the uh, old grey whistle test. We did that. And uh, I wore that coat on it. And everybody else went to the bar. And I thought, well, <laughs> there's something missing there. I, I come, I back on my hair all out, and uh, I, I managed to get some makeup, and I did triangles around my face like that, and a star in the middle of the forehead, and it, which matched the the jacket that I was wearing, the coat. It was a long coat, and uh, I thought, oh, that will do. And I, we went on and did that, and then that's the first time I used that kind of thing. But then when uh, I started Wizard, I thought, well, it's a shame to lose that, really. Let's have a multicoloured version of that, which is what I, that was the Wizard 
uh, image there. Yeah, no. I mean, because that was definitely the first first time anyone had ever done anything like that. I'm sure. And <laughs> is it on Old Grey? Is, is it on YouTube that that Old Grey was obsessed? It should should be. Yeah, I remember seeing it. I, I heard an interview by. This is great. I heard an interview by uh, John Lennon, who said uh, he was talking about about different British bands and everything, and he, and he was on about seeing that thing on the. Old Grey Whistle Test, and he phoned a couple of mates and said, "You've got to watch this." Because wow. I was, I was uh, obviously that one. I think I'm not sure if we mind it or not, but it was easy to do. Uh, so I ended up right rolling around the floor with my guitar and that, biting the heads off whippets and stuff. You know, <laughs> wow. and Leonard got on the phone to what? Stroke pop. Yeah, Leonard got on the phone to his mates and said, "You've got to watch this." Oh, brilliant! Because <laughs> oh, uh, you were fir- you first went in the studio with Glyn Johns, didn't you? Before it was Danny Cordell. Well, Danny Cordell was our first producer. So it was the first, so, producer, right? Of it, yeah. But in those days, a lot of producers used to rely mainly on the uh, recording engineer, you know, to do all the work. In fact, and then just put their name on the label. And unfortunately, I think Danny was one of those, you know. Oh. And uh, but I, I took this into uh, into my brain, and every time we did a session, I was really making sure I could see what the engineer was doing, so it it all went in there, and I could use it later on, you know. Ah, it was Glenn John's part. Did Glenn John's ever work with you? Yeah, he did. Glenn John's did work with the move. I, th- yeah. I, I think he did on a couple. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Also, because I've just been rereading, just coincidentally, the other day I was rereading My White Bicycle, the um, uh, the Joe Boyd. Book, oh, it's a great book. And he absolutely raves about the move, about how he was desperately trying to get you signed to Electra, and he thought you literally could have been like the Who in America. I, I think uh, maybe the the failure of the move in America was just bad management. We didn't get the breaks. Talking of management, though, he he was quite a a wild manager wasn't he tony secunda he got you to got all kinds of get up to all kinds of tricks and i know i know yeah. at one point you you got sued by harold wilson but but what else what else was he <laughs> going what other mad stuff was going on oh it was all mad i mean i tried to distance myself from all that really you know as far as i could because all i wanted to do i mean the only reason i wanted to be in a band then is to get my songs heard by people you know, simple as that. Yeah. And if I could have done a just a studio thing like Brian Wilson and just written for the band and stayed up off the stage, I would have I would have welcomed that. You know, I would have done it. Uh, your so, your image and your persona doesn't doesn't say that. No. <laughs> <laughs> but in You're, saying no, that, just, <laughs> he hides covering all that with bullshit. Is yeah. it exactly? Yeah. 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 But but Tony came up with some wacky ideas. I know that one of the things that I think probably upset Carl. I don't know, but you ended up being sued by Harold Wilson because you you it created some postcard of him and Marcia Williams in bed. What was what was? I can publicise this now. Yeah, you have the scoop. It was a publicity postcard for Flowers in the Rain with the moves name on, and it, it had a cartoon of Wilson with his secretary, uh, which was libelous. Uh, and Secunda knew the right people. To, I, I mean, I knew nothing about it, full stop. There were people around that Secunda knew that actually posted the postcards in the right letterboxes. Anyway, the, the next thing we knew, we were summoned to the, the high court and we were getting sued. 
for it. And a second thought, oh, great, you know, a bit more publicity. But what happened in the end, uh, we arrived for the thing. They wouldn't allow us. I, I think Secunda must have done a deal with someone before that. And they wouldn't allow us in court to state our case because none of us really knew much about it. I knew absolutely nothing. I think Carl knew about it. And he advised Secunda not to do it. And uh, anyway, we ended up, we arrived at the old Bailey. It was all on the front pages. So Secunda was going, yeah, great, great. And all this. So what it was, if if I could have got in there and said my piece, I could have said, well, I knew absolutely nothing about it. But the, but the the result was they um, they took away all our royalties and gave them to the Harold Wilson Trust, and I lost more than everybody else because I wrote the song oh. and they they nicked Flowers in the Rain and the B side. Oh. I've never earned a penny from any of it since. But oh. now now that um, Marcio Williams has died, his secretary. I might stand the chance now because there, there are a few there are a few um, things coming out in the newspapers saying that Wilson did have an affair with her, you know, and yeah. the, and there was and the 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 result from that was they were saying well he didn't and now he has hopefully I don't think I'm going to ever get the uh, you know the money back that I'm owed but it would be nice to be able to pass the. Clear your, clear your daughter. name. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but seriously, Roy, you've never earned, earned any money from Flowers in the Rain because of that. No, it still goes to Harold pe- Wilson. Not a penny, no. More to no. the point, what is the Harold Wilson Trust? Where was that money going? Because surely ah, they, they, they can't have just been putting it in their pockets. That would be... A, a new roof on someone's house, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? His cottage in the Silly Isles. <laughs> no, I mean, listen, I'm sure that there's a charity that it, 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 it yeah. it's meant to go to, but it's still criminal that you're having to, you had to suffer for, for, for something that Tony Secunda for, did. Yeah, for a publicity well, stuff. I was, to- I was totally, I was totally not guilty and I had all my money taken off me, no, which was no. in those days was... And that's uh, a big you know. song. That's one of your biggest songs, right? Yeah. Flowers in the Rain for the move. Well, yeah, because it was a, it was the first song ever played on Radio 1. Yeah. So whenever there's uh, anything going on, they always play that, you know. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. 
To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. For me, Fire Brigade was so great. I loved it as a, oh, thanks, as a, mate, as a kid. You. And that was you singing on that one, wasn't it? Well, actually, can I give you a little something on that? Is that, you know, um, Roy, I don't know if you know that Gary and I are in this band together, Nick Mason's Source Full of Secrets. And we, Brilliant. and as our encore on the first three tours, we used to close with uh, Point Me at the Sky. And I actually used to insert the line of Call the Fire Brigade into that. You did, yeah. That's from right. your song. Really? So, yeah, so, yeah. Well, thank you. There seemed to be that's some more, so more money synonymous. that's not coming your way. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go to Harold Wilson. You've had that, mate. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I think Blair got mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but but a great song, you know, and just yeah, fantastic. I mean, production song. as well. I mean, that was really what was starting to come out in the move. This kind of really ornate, um, cinematic style of producing that was you know, with strange instruments here and there, and that that great thing, and parts jumping out. That's the thing I love. There'd suddenly be a guitar yeah, yeah. part just for a bar. It's yeah. like way louder than everything else. Well, we used to take a lot of care in those days on mixing and that kind of stuff. And I, I thought it would go into outer space and we'd have speakers all around the room by now, you know. <laughs> but now people are listening to it on a phone in the corner of the room, just stuck on the chair, you know. Well, there, at the other end, there is there is the whole Atmos spatial thing going on. But I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Roy, is it true, though, you, you, that first album, the tapes all got stolen or something when you were making the first Move album? I think so. Yeah, I, I didn't really know much about what was going on there. I, I tried to remove myself from the publishing end of it. Because so I, I heard... Could, the, the, I could get that, on with the writing. How else <laughs> Yeah, probably, yeah. What's George Brown? What's out, <laughs> what's out there is, um, is that they went missing and then they got found in a skip and you had to re-record the first album again. Is this all, is this all not true? No, we, we didn't re-record the album. I don't know what happened with the tapes, but they must have found them. Because we didn't re-record it. Wrapped right, around right. the effort, they're wrapped around the World Cup. Yeah, yeah. And then you're talking about Bad Fiber Guide. We were. I went down to um, Olympic uh, Studios in Barnes. And yeah. we, we, we were supposed to be having a producer there mixing it, which I won't name names. Uh, but he didn't turn up. So in the end, I did it myself. I didn't get any credit on the on the uh, on the record. But I did it myself, and that was the first time I actually got into producing properly because me and the and the sound engineer had a lot in common, you know, and it, and it, it worked really, really well. <laughs> did Carl Wayne leave at the oh, same time as Tony Secunda and, and 
Jeff Lynn arrive? Is that how it happened? Because you went from the fire into the frying pan. You, you ended up, got rid of Tony Secunda and got Don Arden. Got Don, yes. <laughs> oh, God. Thank you. Thanks for reminding me. Uh, yeah, good God. He was a disagreeable character, if anybody was. And, uh, oh, the thing is... Never heard that. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, how can I explain this? Our previous manager, who wasn't Secunda, it was somebody else, actually sold us to Arden when we were number one in the charts through Blackberry Way. So Arden never, ever had to do anything to promote us. We we were already there, if you know what I mean. Wow. And I I mean, I didn't know at the time, and otherwise I I wouldn't have done it. And uh, we were signed up and, uh, you know, not good. That's the story of bands in those days, wasn't it? They got sort of like treated like cattle. Yeah, it's basically human trafficking, isn't it? I mean, it's... Oh, say no more. Good line, I'll use that. (laughs) But when did Jeff come in and why did Jeff come in and how did that happen? Well, I'd had had the idea for an ELO type thing for a few years before that. And I was writing material that suited it. And the rest of the... I was in the move at the time and the rest of the band thought I was nuts. So... That's right, because you'd started putting cellos and stuff on move songs, hadn't you? You'd been trying to yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bought myself a, you know, we'd, uh, I used to buy instruments, like I said before. I used, I bought myself a cheap Chinese cello, and uh, that worked really well on recordings, because I, 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 I couldn't have called myself a good cellist, but it, it sounded more, I am the war, I see. Yeah. You know what I mean? A bit more scrapey than any proper cellist. And it, it worked great for rock and roll. Anyway, I was... Jeff, I was originally with Mike Sheridan and the Night Riders, who changed their names to the Idol Race. And then Jeff joined them after I left, kind of thing. I knew him through that, really. And uh, I knew he was a, a good uh, songwriter. He'd been writing stuff for them. And uh, the idea I had for ELO, I thought, well, it would be nice to have two people doing the doing the chores rather than just me. Yeah. And uh, I got in touch with, with Jeff and we, we were both uh, Birmingham City supporters, unfortunately. We, and we we went down to a couple of games and met at the pub a few times after that and I had a chat about it, you know. And Jeff was really interested in it. The, the only way that we could get it together was for Jeff to join the move at the end of the day. So when Carl had left... Jeff joined. Uh, he joined the move towards the end. We did a couple of albums, and then started. Jeff and I started working together more in the studio, you know, uh, which is great. That's how the ELO thing started. Jeff came along with a with a sort of a skeleton idea for a song, which ended up as one hundred and five for Oh, which was fantastic! Which is a fan- single, that, fantastic song. The single we had had. So he didn't have a he didn't have a title for it at the time. Uh, we were working at uh, a studio at uh, Phonogram Studios, uh, you know, where all the traffic is. Because I always uh, wondered where 10538 came from. Go on. Uh, that's how it just started, yeah. We, we did the backing track there as the move. We were mucking about, and I'd got my cheap Chinese cello hanging about. We were playing the track back, and uh, I started playing like Jimi Hendrix riffs, like on the cello. And Jeff said, wow, that sounds great. You know, let's record it. So I got in there and ended up, ended up putting about 
about a dozen bloody cellos on it, playing all different things, and uh, and that was the birth of the hello. I mean, it it's it, we loved this. Me and Jeff at the time, it sounded it sounded different, orchestral, but rock and roll. It sounded you know really great. Just mentioned Hendrix, and of course you toured with Hendrix. Yes, with and, the, and with yes. Nick Mason. Yeah, yeah, we, we did. Yeah, it was. I don't know. Originally, a Hendrix moved to it because Hendrix had only just come into Britain and started uh, working. You know, what was that like so, when you first? By the way, what, what was it like first seeing Hendrix? Was it? I mean, was it just seismic for everyone or for you? Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, it was great. And it, uh, it was great when we when we did the tour with it. I mean, when he was sober, he was he was a really nice man. I mean, yeah. he, he was the one that stood up if a woman came in the room, you know. Uh, but having that American thing about him, when we were doing the tour, we played somewhere. On the, on, it was a coastal town down south, either Southampton or Portsmouth or one of those kind of places in one of the in the city hall, and. Uh, I went out, we have done our sound check and uh, I went out to get a sandwich and uh, when, when I came back, Hendrix was doing the sound check and they were playing I Can Hear the Grass Grow, oh, the wow. Jimi Hendrix experience. Wow. And I, and, and I was going, that'll do. You know, it was absolutely great. I, I was I was knocked out, you know. Oh, I wish so was then recording. I went up, uh, um, you know, by the side of the stage. When he came off, he said, uh, I said, uh, sorry about the lyrics, man. He said, uh, I made them up. He said, uh, I just love the guitar riffs. You know, so that, that was great. Did you tell me you tuned his guitar up, Roy? Did I forget that wrong? Oh, yeah, yeah. A couple of times, yeah. There was um, uh, our roadie, uh, the moves roadie, had left us, a guy called Upsey, and he, he, he was working for Hendrix when we did the, did the tour. And uh, this is before the days when you could get guitar tuners that you could clip onto your guitar and, and do all that kind of stuff. The, uh, whoever was tuning Hendrix's guitars was ill or something and wasn't there. And uh, 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 there was a guy, what was his name now? Uh, uh, there's a tour manager called Jerry Stickles. And uh, he said, oh, uh, how can we get to tune Jimmy's guitar? And obviously he said, oh, Woody will do it. He said he's got a few of his own to do. So I was happy to, and uh, it got me out of the dressing room with the other oh. other people, you know. And uh, we, uh, I was in a little room with a tune-up amp with a few guys. It was great. I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. What, what was Sid Barrett like? Did you did you because Sid was on know. that tour, wasn't he? I think you mentioned that when we met up before. Uh, I, to be fair, we used to depending on what the, everybody else's gigs were. Uh, we we used to go on a coach quite a lot of us, and I I don't remember Sid being on the coach. To be fair, I remember Nick Mason being on the coach, and I, uh, I got quite friendly with Nick because I. Uh, well, he's a fellow we Brummie, a isn't he? He was actually born in. He's actually from Birmingham. Oh, was he? He was. Yeah. Blimey, he didn't admit to that. So anyway, <laughs> we we I I it's just. I bought this jacket from, like a floral jacket from, there's a store on the King's Road in London called Granny Saves right, a Trip. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they used to make a lot of the, yeah, yeah. They used to make a lot of stuff for the Rolling Stones and all that. So anyway, I got this jacket, and I, which I was wearing. But uh, I was talking to Nick about it, and then 
I got got to a gig towards the end of the tour, and he he'd been and bought the trousers, <laughs> the matching matching trousers <laughs> jacket. So we had a good laugh about that. Didn't, you didn't uh, take turns wearing it as a suit. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so let's ju- jump back forward where we were. So with ELO coming forward, so they, they, you actually ended up in two bands together, didn't you? Because you were both releasing record. I think the Moves last record and ELO's first. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, at the same yeah. time. Well, I, I wanted to start ELO a lot sooner than we did, uh, and because we'd got a contract with EMI. Uh, we um, we still had to do, I think, two more move albums. I thought, well, uh, you know, I'll get Jeff involved with it, and uh, you know, we we did the last two albums together, which was good. We had, we had a good laugh doing that. I don't know. A lot of this has to do with Don Arden and his timing on stuff, and it, like I say, he was a bit of a disagreeable character, and a lot of things didn't happen at the time they should have happened. I mean. I'd recorded an album, a solo album called Boulders the, at Abbey Road, and which I played all the instruments on. And Arden wouldn't allow that to be released until 12 months later, until all this ELO thing had uh, died down, you know, because he wanted me to reform the move or something. I don't know. Weird. Wow. But did- uh, who came up with the name, by the way? Because it's such a... Such a perfect, does exactly what it says on the tin name. Me. Isn't it? Yeah. Electric Light Orchestra. Because I was thinking, there were things on the radio at the time uh, with the, the middle of the Light Orchestra, mm. you know, just playing like light music and all oh, that. Yeah, the light program. Thought, yeah. Yeah, the light program. So I thought it'd be great to have a, a thing to do with like electric lights and all that kind of stuff. And electric Light Orchestra. And... Uh, I always wanted a, a really big, nice light show when we first started. Then, of course, I wouldn't have it. Didn't want to spend the money on it. And uh, and then Pink Floyd did it, of course, and, you know, cashed in. But uh, you had two, you virtually had two singles out at the same time, if I, I remember right. As a kid, I bought both. California Man for The Move and... California Man and, and 10538, yeah. Yeah, at the same time. My yeah. God. Both in the charts at the same time, yeah. That's that's amazing. Well, you did did, but Jeff sang on one and you sang on the other, right? One hundred five three eight. Jeff sang on, uh, and California Man. We both sang on, right? Uh, because I wanted to include Jeff on more stuff. So what what happened on the second album? The, yeah, because it was Arden who who caused the split, wasn't it? Uh, the split, yeah. yeah. Now this is, I've got to be careful how I. I don't know how you're going to edit this program, but I've got to be careful how I say this because it's difficult to difficult to explain. Do you want to do it through the, the medium of dance? The reason, <laughs> yeah, go on. The reason I left ELO was through pressure from Don Arden, not because I mean some of the uh, the media said that me and Jeff had had an argument. or we, I, from, from now till then, I don't think Jeff had ever, uh, and I had ever fallen out. Uh, but it's it's how Arden and his, uh, his team wanted to portray it, mm-hmm. that we'd fallen out. So, you know, now two bands is something. And I didn't realise until years later that he, Arden was trying to split us up because he knew that we were both decent songwriters and he could earn more more money if we were in separate bands think about it Mm. from a managerial point of view so 
The, the earliest uh, memory I have of these is we, I never, he never came to gigs. And we were, uh, we were in uh, ELO, uh, we were doing a tour of, uh, we're over in Italy of all places. And then all of a sudden, Arden turned up with his son and a, a few people from the office. And I thought, what the hell is he doing here? Because he never, ever comes to gigs. He never came to any mood gigs. Never. And I wondered, what there's something going on here. So anyway, I mean, in, in those days, my, my hearing was good in those days. I could have got a job on a submarine, you know what I mean? I think it means very good at hearing. And Great line. We were walking down the street. We, we, we were walking down the streets in Italy from from the sound check, I think, to the hotel or something. And it was me, me and Arden side by side walking. He was chatting to me, and I was listening to what was going on behind. Jeff was behind me with a couple of people uh, from the office. Then they were chatting, and they were spreading the shit like you wouldn't believe, saying, oh, you know, Roy wants all the publicity and this, that, and the other, which is totally the opposite of what it was. You know, you know, planting audible stuff into Jeff's mind, if you know what I mean. And uh, in those days, I mean, we were we were both only like early 20s. You know, we never thought that somebody would have a plan like this. You wouldn't have, but we didn't know. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, uh, after the tour, things started to get a bit squiffy, if you know what I mean. And, um, but, and rather than letting us have some time to write and, uh, and uh, leave things for a while, he put us straight in the studio. I went in there and I'd... Uh, how can I explain this? I, I went in there and I, I just had my, uh, my uh, Fender Jazz bass turned into a fretless, so I was really keen on playing it, like whizzing about on it and everything. And I thought, oh, well, I'll try it on really this That's really early. That's, hang on, that's really early. That's what, 70, yeah. 71 we're talking. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. You're, you're, you're a pioneer there, Roy. <laughs> so I was playing stuff like Pino Palladino plays now, if you know what I mean. Not as good, Influenced but that by the kind cello. of sound. Wow. That, that sort of sound. I did it on this track. That, uh, in fact, it was a track that Jeff had written. And, uh, and uh, Jeff was being slightly grumpy about it. He says, oh, oh I don't like that. Yeah, that kind of thing. But I ended up putting the fretless bass in the, back in the case. And I walked out of the session. And I went to meet a Mason Wayne, uh, Rick Price, who was, who was the bass player in uh, the move, uh, at the end of the move. And he was the bass player in Wizard as well. Uh, good bloke. And it, I just wanted somebody else's opinion who knows stuff. And uh, he was recording at Air Studios with a, with, with a band there. And we we chatted about it all. And, and it, I came to the conclusion that it would be a, the best idea to leave ELO before we actually fell out, which we never did fall right. out. And that's what I did. Right. And was wow. Wizard straight away on your mind? How long did it take for that? happened uh well it took us a while to get ELO together so I, di- I didn't want to take too much time over it and I'd, I'd already written some rock and roll tracks that I was going to put on a follow-up at a solo album which I think the a- tracks were Ballpark Incident See My Baby oh. Drive those kind of things because there was know? a rock and roll revival at that time wasn't there Guy and I saw yeah, a great was, documentary yeah. recently about a rock and roll revival concert in America in, where John in, Lennon in played in Toronto yeah where the, which was the, fir- the end oh, of the yeah. Beatles really. it was the first Plastic Ono Band gig but um, yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. also there was the big things at Wembley Stadium and stuff happening well that was a bit later yeah that, yeah. that was another thing that really annoyed me 
greatly. I was asked to do, I mean, it, it's a big job, the Wembley Stadium. I mean, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, you did that, right, right. Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Bo Diddley, all, that, all them, they were all on it. This has nothing to do with uh, Don Arm. He was still my manager at the time. But it, he got a bit pissed off about it. And we, uh, the, the people that were organising it liked me. They were fans of mine. So they said, will you do it? And I said, yeah. And then I got a band together specifically to do that, which was Wizard. And uh, Don Arm got into the – he put a spanner in the works somehow. And then when we – a week before the gig, he changed the name of Wizard to the Move. What? On, on the poster. Oh, uh, wow. Oh, Think about that one. So that, that, that could have been great publicity for Wizard at the time, if it being the first. It was the first gig we ever did. Was come on, come on, boy. You didn't need it. I mean, you had, you had consecutive number ones, didn't you? I mean, See My Baby Drive, Angel Fingers. I mean, but Ballpark Incident. And we're not even got to the Christmas single yet. I mean, I just remember... What I loved uh-huh. about Wizard and why I have bought the singles was this wall of sound production, this yeah. great sort of, you know, baritone saxophones yeah. and, and everything going so big. And I mean, it's very Spectre-ish, wasn't it? Yeah. Also, one thing I'll say... Going, I love, well, I love Spectre. Yeah. yeah, you could tell. But going back and listening to them for this, Roy, is of remembering in front, is that on things like See My Baby Jive, it's just you actually you had an embarrassment of riches like there's there, there's there's like four separate incredibly strong hooks in that song you could have split that into three or four singles easily you know it's just hook after hook after hook it's brilliant mm. well, well what i try to do with the song is to make rather than the uh the middle eight section or middle bit whichever you want to call it just be a, a, a throwaway i like that to be a separate entity mm. and let's just sort of link it up you know so that you can sing that you could sing that in a football game on its own without the main song you know and i think that's quite important i just remember ballpark incident was such a great title even yeah. as a kid i just thought wow what is the Thank incident you. yeah you know and it was, it was <laughs> yeah, so what's, a, ball, what's a ballpark <laughs> <laughs> do you know what you 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 had you had some mad stuff going on on telly as well because what i didn't know till yesterday was that your your girlfriend was was aisha uh bruff and at the time yeah yeah and she because yeah. she well, was the one who dressed super sonic yeah from aisha's oh, liftoff she used to dance on the stage did she on the on top of the pops dressed up as mad you know whatever roller skates lift off with aisha because nick and nick lift off with aisha just to say nick rhodes from duran <clears throat> always rubs my nose in that because I, uh, you know, for me, the first time I saw Bowie do Starman was on top of the pops, and he said, "Oh no, no, no!" First time <laughs> I saw Bowie do Starman was on Asia. Oh right, yeah, 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 yeah which yeah. was before Top of the Pops. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, she was. She's yeah. quite. A, oh, what can I say? Yeah, but what a great idea that was. Thank you. Nice to have some feedback from other that 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 really pleases me. That's great. Thank you. I mean, you don't have to say good things. Just just say what you think, and it it does help. We are. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I'll send you. I'll send you the check later. But what made you want to write a Christmas? I said it to Harold Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> what made you want to write a Christmas song, Roy? Uh, well, I was thinking this is around May. The May of that year, I think it was. And I thought, well, there hasn't been a Christmas hit for a long time. 
like a proper rock and roll one that they'd all be like weird comedy things and uh I think the only one I could remember at that time was Brenda Lee rocking around the Christmas tree, the original one. And I thought, time for another. And uh, so I started writing it round about then and like, you know, for a couple of months after that. I just, I don't usually sit down and torture myself and write the whole song because I'm, I'm too lazy to do that. I just write bits of it, throw them all in a folder. And then when I'm in the mood, I'll get them all out and, finish it off, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, and at that time, I, I, I haven't got a clue that uh, Slade or anybody else is going to be doing one because I, I knew Nobby anyway. I mean, he's a good lad. He's Nobby, and uh, uh, he kept his cards close to his chest, and so did I. And uh, so we went in to record it, phonogram again, and uh, I got the roadies to go in early on the session, and put two like massive fans up in the corner and some blue lights, and uh, and make it like really cold. And I, <laughs> I, I phoned I phoned the band method. And said, Come along to the session, bring your overcoats and scarves and bobble hats, and they did. And they came, came along, and we we actually recorded the backing tracks of that in the bloody freezing cold, and it was great. And uh, we got into the atmosphere of it. I got the uh, control room you know, fairy lights and the Christmas tree and all that, you know, yeah. just to get into the thing of it. It went, it went really, really well. And then around about five o'clock, I think five thirty, we, we we all went for a break for a sandwich and opened the doors and it was absolutely blazing sunshine, you know, really <laughs> really put the mockers on it. This was in August we we recorded it. <laughs> so I suppose I, I I used to live near um Jamie Oliver. Well I, I passed by his old house where he used to live. And uh, at about August every year, they'd be wheeling in the Christmas trees and you'd see all the Christmas lights inside his house. Yeah. So obviously they were filming the Christmas special. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got, I've still got my tree up now. There's nowhere else to put it. I, I once, well, because this is the burning question, Roy, which does need to be answered. And I think you may have just answered it there, which is, do you wish it would be, could be Christmas every day? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Do you know, guy? I, I read. I read a few years ago something about some people get. Uh, there are some people out there, you know, like who go to Disneyland every day. But there are some people out there who make Christmas every day. That really is, exists. It's a thing. Well, and they yeah. make Christmas dinner for themselves every day. Well, Barbara Mandrell, the country singer, didn't she? She was born on Christmas Day, and so in Nashville, I don't know if it's still there, but I saw it years ago. She had a Christmas shop. That just sells Christmas knickknacks all, all year round. Uh, all there's year a round. Christmas. Got, there's, there's one. They've in the got Cotswolds. one of those in Derby. Yeah. I don't know how they make a living. Who goes in there? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Roy is very happy though. They, they're playing your record on the. Yeah, exactly. The, I uh... bet they are. <laughs> yeah, I'll check. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> it was fantastic that you got embraced into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant. And that was through ELO. Uh, in fact, really, the, the well, it was ELO that was doing it and I, I went along to the uh, the do in New York uh, just a few years ago and I hadn't seen Jeff for years and we got on absolutely fine you know it was great and it, it was great because they 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 actually played live for the new ELO lot and they had a, 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 some pictures on the, a, the on the screen at the back with me on it, which is great. I was, uh, which is good. But you did, I was listening to your Annie Haslam album earlier. Yeah, that was a nice collaboration. How did that come about? 
That was great, yeah. That was great. Uh, yeah. Uh, a couple of things that were good on that. We did uh, we did a version of uh, Going Home, Going Home. You know, the Hovis advert. And uh, I just treated myself to some uh, balalikas. I got... Because that a weird thing with balalikas. They haven't got enough strings on <laughs> to make a proper chord. So you have to have three of the bloody things and play them all together. And then it sounds like a proper jobbo. And uh, oh, wow. I've re- I recorded loads of them. And it's like a balalaika orchestra. And uh, and we did that as a backing track. I, I, I love that. Okay, Roy, uh, um, man after your own heart. I have a bass balalaika. Oh, right. It's an... how, how much do you want for it? <laughs> yeah, I thought you were. I've had it for so, so long. And um, yeah. it's enormous. And it's like the back of it. It's, it's like a boat, like a rowing yeah. boat. And it's like yeah. a flying V. It's got a spike in it. You have to lift it up. And oh, really? It. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Because apparently, okay. and there are old CBS recordings because the Russians did have balalaika orchestras. And there were literally like a hundred of them going from balalaikas that big up to my literally and everything in between yeah there's loads of them yeah, and, yeah. They, and they play with these really thick leather plectrums and it's like everyone going and it's a mad sound but so, anyone yeah. anyone who wants a relationship with guy has to accept that the bass balalaika comes with you doesn't yeah. it love me love my okay. bass balalaika good well done well done <laughs> i wouldn't have it any other way <laughs> roy it's been absolutely fantastic really? everyone you you you, not, you 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 told me the other week that you you've not been playing live um but, no. because you you were out every single christmas weren't you you and the quo and various people and and um do you miss that well um strangely enough uh, around about the time of the uh the pandemic happened it was four years ago something like that i was i was diagnosed with the uh, diabetes 2 which is uh, left me with a few irritations so to speak that are not good for touring and uh so because i had the excuse not to tour anyway because the theaters weren't doing very well at the time to give it a miss for a while i stopped doing it and uh, the only thing i miss really uh, is the people um I'd, i've never really been into the traveling and the other all the other nonsense that, that goes with it you know, but I, I do love the people that, that, that I work with. Uh, but since then, um, you know, I, I became friends with Alfie Bow, who's a, an amazing singer. Right. And uh, he's invited me along to a few of his gigs, so I get up and sing with him. I mean, the, the problem with singing with somebody like him is the first thing that crosses your mind, I need some singing lessons. <laughs> <laughs> Because he's, he's, he's bloody marvellous. He's a really good singer. Roy, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. That's total been great. Honour. Thanks, lads. You've been in my record collection for since since I first started. Uh, it's been a, it's a great honour to have, listen to you, have you on and been able to listen to all those songs again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Aww. Yeah. God, he looks great, doesn't he? he I does can't believe good. He does whatever he is. It's quite imposing. He had the, with those two stained glass windows behind him. Crusaders type shields. <laughs> yeah, and he's got I'd, a bit of I'd, that look about him. It's so much though, isn't there? Man so of Albion. Mo- but seriously, the move and ELO and Wizard and just, you know, gave a lot to music, has given a lot. Still Absolutely. is probably. Um, would, would recommend to all of this because it, it's been a great deep dive because those move records are fantastic, especially, and that first Stunning. ELO album. And, and again, and the Wizard stuff, is a, it's like an embarrassment of pop riches. 
Well, on that first ELO album, oh, there's my dog. Well, your dog's on the first ELO album. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> He's just gone down to attack an Amazon p- p- man. Um, but uh, that on that first on that first ELO album, there's that fantastic proggy sort of medieval song, isn't there? Yeah. The ba- the Battle of Marston Moor. <laughs> oh, hang on, my dog's really howling. I'm gonna have to go. All right. Well, um, there Sounds it is. Like Pop so thanks to Ben, our producer. Thank you to Roy for being brilliant. Yeah. And uh, we'll see you next week. Or hear, you'll hear from us next week. Anyway, uh, it's good or night his, from me. Or Gary's dog, and it's good night from them. Rock on Tours is produced by Gimme Sugar Productions for Warner Music Group UK. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Guy Raz, and on my show, Wisdom from the Top, I talk with CEOs and business leaders about the toughest challenges of their careers. There's lots of ways to measure success. Sometimes a company has to bet against itself. We wanted to set ourselves apart by having a point of view. Businesses really impact people's lives in pretty fundamental ways. On Wisdom from the Top, some of the greatest business leaders of our time share their intimate stories of leadership, innovation, and transformation. Stories you won't hear anywhere else. Check out Wisdom from the Top only on Luminary. Now, back to your show. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.